This is Stephen Pizzello, executive editor of American Cinematographer Magazine. I'm here to interview Alex Sakharov, ASC, who served as director of photography on HBO's acclaimed television series, The Sopranos. From the first season on, Alex shared this duty with fellow cinematographer Phil Abraham. Alex shot 39 of the show's 86 episodes, including the pilot and the infamous final episode, which still has the entire country buzzing. Alec flew in yesterday from the East Coast, and he graciously agreed to chat with us about his work on the show. Of course, he's also here to discuss the controversial ending, which fans have analyzed almost as obsessively as the Zapruder film. So, Alec, how does it feel to know that you've got the entire country arguing around water coolers and on websites? (laughs) (laughs) Good. I mean, this thing has really taken on a life of its own the last few days. I think, you know, when when all this commotion subsides, you know, um, I think... It was very important not to set something up that was uh, immediately gratifying, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Right. Just because it's the nature of the show in general, do you think? No, I, th- I actually think a show tends to always, um, majority of the episodes always tended to open on, uh, to, to end on an open note. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there, was never, uh, there was never really a conclusive um, um, fat period at the, cent- of, at, at the end of the sentence. So by having the show end the way it ended, it only, it only really supports, supports the idea that this show had always had. Because it's an ending. You know, if, if this show, if this particular show was, was, let's say, fourth in line, and it ended the way it ended, I don't think it would have created such a hoopla. Yeah, I think you're right. I, mean, I also think that uh, by doing it this way, he's actually given his, friends, his fans a little uh, present because they can keep talking about it and <laughs> obsessing over it. I also think, you know, it's very convenient to think that, oh, it would have been great, man, you know, if there was some sort of this, you know, this conclusion, you know, like this, you know, a lot of people were expecting a bloodbath or whatever it was, you know. You know, this immediate gratification really serves no purpose for the show that really is a psychophilosophical analysis, uh-huh. right? Right. So um, once, you, once, you, once you sort of like accept that fact and I want to begin to understand that you know there's grander scheme in mind much much more than than what a lot of people think of so what David did is is what very intelligent uh, and any intelligent filmmaker should do is you know he should engage the viewer to bring to the show as much as the filmmakers brought to the viewer it's interesting given the, the show's psychological bent it's almost like the ending is a Rorschach test for the viewer to see what kind of person you are, what kind of thing you interpret at the end, like whether you want a hard conclusion or just to leave it open, you know. Right, and I, I, I and I also think that if the show ends the way it ended, and now you left sort of uh, left out perplexed, you're forced to use your mind. Mm-hmm. You're forced to to start analyzing some things that you may have never even come to analyze about the show. And now, as you are as you're thinking about the show, it forces you to analyze not just this particular episode, but the entire show, right? And I think that's the, that's the beauty of it, because, you know, the show has ended, but the process didn't, right? And so, therefore, because we don't have the conclusive finale, so to speak, which to me is actually quite conclusive, but because there isn't, there isn't fat period at the end of the sentence, and things are as open as they are, the show will live on forever, Right? If you had that big fat end, you know... With People the, wouldn't be talking about it anymore. Well, you know, it would be like, whoa, that was a nice show. Remember that was... And then, boom, forgotten in five, ten minutes. Well, do you think uh, David had any idea that his ambiguous ending would cause such an uproar? 
I, I, I suppose he had some, some, some sort of notion of it. I mean, I remember meeting David first time, uh, our prep meeting was at the diner. It was early in the morning uh, in uh, uptown Manhattan someplace, and we sat down, and the uh, first thing he asked me is, this, so what do you think of the ending? I said, well, you know, you're asking the wrong guy because I'm so partial to it. It's great. <laughs> so did you, did you already know at that point that the screen would be cutting to black and... It was so written into the. It, it was at that point. That's how it read, mm-hmm. right? But I don't think you know everyone had this idea that it's going to end that way and that's it. I mean, it was a lot of back and forth, I suppose. You know, like any creative process. You know, you think about it, and um, uh, David's analytical process is such that you know he thinks about every single detail. And not only, not only, you know, how the show is going to uh, um, be written and, and photographed, you know. The, his, his analysis of the characters goes so deep. And the things that he speaks with actors about, you know. Um, at times, you get, you get to participate in a session of that, 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 that has nothing to do really with filmmaking. You know, you feel like... Uh, they're carving. They're carving something in time here. It's like they're sculpting in time, if 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 I use Tarkovsky's terminology. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. You know, so to me, it's it's like that that you know old cliche that has become a cliche. Is that it's like yeah, you you see a glob of stone. You know, within it there is there is a shape that you need to extract. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like carving something out of wood or you know. yeah. So so I think I think David has got that shape very very well chiseled out in his mind. And he happens to have this very precise way of explaining and expressing himself, which also is very minimalist at the same time. Uh, and the way he, the script is written, you know, it's to me, it's like it has all of the all of the qualities of the poem. You know, it's very minimalistic, and it doesn't deprive the information either. You know, it just gives you what you need. Right. There's no fat. You know, and because there's no fat. And there's only things that you need. You get inspired by it because you now, you now don't have all this fat to rely on or, or uh, to take your mind away from what really needs to be um, um, concentrated upon. So it boils it down to the essence. And- exactly. And then, and then it's much easier to visualize or interpret certain things mm-hmm. because it's so disciplined. Every word is thought through. Yeah. Right? And that, that reminds me of poetry. Well, I mean, you know, the ending has already become one of the most famous in uh, television history. You know, when the screen unexpectedly went black, millions of people thought they'd lost their TV signal at the worst possible moment. I mean, um, should people assume that Tony Soprano was dead, or did David intend to keep the ending open to interpretation? I think the important thing to remember is it's not about whether he's dead or he's alive, really. It's not even important. What's important is the, is the process. After the, you know, like you have a very, very, very fine caviar, Right? You eat it, right? And then you let it sit in the palate of your mouth. And then you begin to enjoy, enjoy the aftertaste, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think, you know, it's a stupid analogy, but, you know, that's what came to mind. <laughs> but, but to me, that's what it is. It's not, it's not whether Tony dies or, 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 or uh, he lives, you know? Every single person is going to bring their own ending into it, mm-hmm. you know? Tolstoy wrote One War and Peace. Millions of people read it. They read millions of books, different books, because everyone has their own interpretation. They picture the, the picture the story differently in their own minds. Exactly. 
you know, David, David decided to end show the way he ended. Um, hmm. Does he die? To me personally, this person will die. Whether he dies now next or. second or six months or six years from or, you know, 16. What's the point? What's the difference? It doesn't matter. You know, what, what matters is that uh, your mind is engaged and you need to be thinking about it. And hopefully, uh, by thinking about it, you'll not go, you'll, you will not only be retracing the steps of the show, um, uh, this particular episode, but retracing the steps of the entire show. Right? I mean, look, these characters fell upon us suddenly 10 years ago. Right? From the fruit of David's imagination. Right? It was just as sudden as he took him away from us. Right? Yeah, yeah, my, my initial theory was that uh, he was actually whacking us, the viewer, because you can't watch anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's... that's an, and, 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 and I think I even probably wrote in one of my emails to you that I think David is a philosopher. You know, first and foremost. You know, he may, he may not agree with me, but that's, that's, that's my personal conviction. You know? And I think he's more philosopher than a filmmaker, right? Filmmaking is just a means of expressing, expressing his point of view at the world. Ideas. Right. And it happens to be so immediate and so uh, far-reaching and so widespread that everyone can see it. If you read Descartes, for instance, right? Selected few people will read it, you know, intellectuals or people that study that sort of thing. You know, it would not have such widespread... Uh, An impact on the... On, on the masses, I mean, you know, I, I, would, I would probably venture to say probably a billion people saw Sopranos, at least, I would say. Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get, some, I get some emails from Russia, from people I've, I have no idea of, right? In Russian, that, you know, telling so me... So they're that, arguing there too, huh? That, well, no, actually, actually, I don't know if that's the series went... I'm talking about the first two or three episode, uh, uh, seasons that have reached Russia. Oh, yeah. You know... And how universal the show is and how impactful it is. Because really, you know, the, the universal motif of dysfunctional family. Well, yeah, that, that's the key. Is that, you know, he's also put it in, in the context of a, a popular genre, gangsters, that everybody enjoys. And... Yeah, and, and, and it, it, be, it becomes very accessible. It's very immediate. You know, because look, in my, in my own family, you know, I have sort of... Sort of uh, I can relate to certain things, you know, certain things that mis- uh, dysfunction in, in, in Soprano's family. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So, certain things like this don't work in my family either. Well, yeah, I also think if you're, if you're any sort of middle manager in life, uh, working in an office job with, that involves supervision, you'll understand Tony's angst and his strategies and That's everything right. else that he does. You know? And, you know, he's a thinking individual, and he, he has to be thinking, or else, you know, there's a matter of life and death. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually saw the other day that somebody had put out a book, uh, on management, business management, the Tony Soprano way. And it's a serious book about business strategies based on what he did in the show. So <laughs> that's the <laughs> ultimate crossover. Now, the final scene takes place in um, Holston's, a famous diner in New Jersey. Um, so you redress the interior, I understand, including the jukeboxes and the tables. Those aren't really there. And this, those weren't there. Uh, we actually stripped, stripped a few things down. In the diner itself, there were some shelves there. There were uh, certain things that kind of didn't organize the eye, mm-hmm. you know. So David, myself, and production designer Bob, we talked about, you know, giving it a little bit, a little bit more, I would say, um, I don't want to say strict. I just want to say more, more organized, disciplined 
a cleaner line. Cleaner, so, yeah. cleaner, yeah. Just to take away the shells, take away um, certain things that sort of like distracted, uh, uh, would, would be distracting to the eye, you know, because everything had to be centered around that booth. And so, um, you know, we crossed the line a couple of times, knowing that we will be going back and forth into the exterior um, I see in where meadows parallel parking. Um, so that was deliberately done such that, you know, we started covering on one side of the line and then we jumped on the other side of the line. And then when members only jacket, uh, when members only uh, person ca- comes into the door, you know, um, it was the organization of editing. So we just wanted to cover ourselves in many different um, uh, camera setups. Um, and so it, became apparent that we're going to see the entire diner and, and the whole diner was sort of redressed a little bit. And uh, did, did you actually shoot several different endings or is that just a rumor? We didn't shoot several endings. Okay. You know, there was, you know, there's a very strict discipline to the way, the way I understand David is thinking, you know, he, he's a disciplined person, you know. So to me it was always apparent that he was just striving for one end and that, that end was the way it was ended in the script. People have been uh, blogging endlessly about all the supposed clues in the scene, uh, which range from the songs in the jukebox to the members-only jacket worn by this suspicious guy watching Tony from the counter. Uh, can you tell us how many of these clues are actually intentional or relevant? I, mean, I would not know about this. I don't, I don't know if they are uh, intentional. I think, um, personally, I think that they, they bring some relevance, you know, by not dire- indirect relevance. Like, for instance, you know, the... Um, People say that the guy who comes into the diner, you know, looks like Phil Leotardo's um, nephew, right? Or the trucker that comes in, USA, USA um, um, baseball cap trucker coming into a diner looks like someone who, um, you know, there's some traces. He was robbed by Christopher or something in yeah. season two, this guy. Yeah, the African-American uh, boys that come into the diner, you know, there's, there are all these elements. I mean, those elements I don't think came... I, th- I think they came from a methodical thinking, you know, and, and those parallels were drawn, obviously, from things that had happened in the show, uh-huh. right? They may not be direct people that... But they resemble enough to, to get the impression going in your mind. Yeah. I mean, look, Tony Soprano revolves around the people, many of whom he has hurt, directly or indirectly. So he's a very vulnerable character. The hit could come from any place, any time, right. from anywhere and anyone. Well, that's one of the things I like the most about the scene is I think it puts you in the headspace of a person who has to worry every minute about every person coming through the door or he's always looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life, even if he does make it out of the scene alive. So. Right. So I think those, those, um, those references to these characters, they didn't, they didn't come out of the blue. I, I'm sure there was a very methodical process in putting them the way they were put in to let us think about those things that happened throughout the history of the show. And that's why... That's why I'm saying that the ending that that was... It encapsulates the whole show. Right. It makes it, it, again, like I said before, it not only lets you think about this particular show and this particular ending, but hopefully will engage your mind to retrace all of the elements of the show. And his whole journey as the character. Right. Now, um, I noticed that the camera only moves for the members-only guy at Dolly's to show him walking into the men's room. Um, the other people are all shown in sort of static shots. I mean, uh, the film grammar seems to tell us that we should be paying special attention to this guy in particular, right? Well, I think we, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we talked about it quite a bit. I mean, you know, how do we, how do we take this guy and uh, how do we build it in such a way so that... Um, I mean, you know, you, you want to bring a little bit of suspense and a little bit of, um, I guess, edge to it. I don't know if, the, if this is a proper word, but 
this was the time when we jumped the line because it was deliberately done that way. No, no, for, for, for uh, listeners who might not understand what jumping the line is, can you explain? If you cover the scene uh, in relationship to, um, let's say, Tony is looking uh, screen right and Carmel is looking screen left, you have to um, maintain that, maintain that the line direction, yeah. direction throughout the scene, which, which means that if Tony is going to be looking camera right, the camera is really um, favoring Carmela's left shoulder, you know? And conversely, if uh, Carmela is looking camera left, the camera is favoring um, on the side of Tony's right shoulder. So when members, uh, only ja- uh, uh, person um, was walking into the bathroom, the camera was now on Tony's left shoulder, on that side. You know, we don't slave to that convention normally, you know? Yeah, it's important to pres- preserve that line, but... Yeah, otherwise it gets confusing unless you're doing a special sort of effect with the camera or, you know... Yeah, but, you know... You must understand the rule if you want to break it. Right. You know? And obviously, um, you know, we talked about it, and this was brought up, uh, that we're going to be crossing the line. And we also understood that uh, even if we cross the line within the scene um, and it becomes confusing, it's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think you succeeded on that count. You know, know, the shot also strikes me as a clear homage to the famous scene in The Godfather when Michael Corleone goes to the men's room to grab a gun that he's going to use to commit a murder. And was that in your mind? It was. It it was in our mind. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I figured it. Yeah, we talked about it. You know, the whole scene really is a textbook on how to build suspense. Um, You know, the editing and the shot selection do create the impression that someone's going to get whacked. And uh, the way you blocked out the scene adds to that impression. Um, For example, the fact that Meadow has trouble parking her car leaves her seat at the table open, which would uh, give members only a clear shot at Tony from the men's room. I mean, uh, is that how you wanted viewers to read the geography of the scene, that he was open and vulnerable? You know, I think it was uh, David's arrangement. Much of it was David's arrangement. I mean, um, he he comes into the scene very prepared. You know, and I remember when we spent time talking about not only this scene, but the entire show. You know, it was very important to us to understand where we will be with the camera and how we're going to tell that story and with what kind of shots. Right. You know, so everything was discussed very, very... Um, Meticulously. Yeah, in, in, in great detail because, because um, like I said, you know, He's the kind of individual who thinks about everything, you know. And uh, when you spend a lot of time thinking about details, not only the way what people, will, the way how people say certain things and what they're saying, uh, but also in in ways how they're going to be covered and from which angle on the camera, with the camera, so that um, when you go into it, you already understand all the basics of the scene. Uh, and and once 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 that's been discussed and written down, you know, because we had our our prep was very detailed. We I think we shot listed everything, you know. Maybe some scenes were left out, which really didn't need any shot listing. But most of it, most of the dramatic scenes and most of the content of, uh, uh, you know, what we did not we did not shot list really is the big uh, big sit down and. Um, in the warehouse. Uh-huh. Well, when all the bomb bosses get together to talk about getting rid of Phil. Yeah. Uh, but that was so evident in our heads that, you know, a certain scene like that would really not need to be shot listed uh, prior to coming in there. Well, the space itself was great. I mean, we found yeah. a great spot for it. It was very ominous. And 
It was huge. It was a quarter mile long. Uh-huh. You know, how, so how did you light that space? With a lot of lights. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a, I don't think we rolled the camera for about five or six hours. Um, you know, and all the equipment was in place. And so it just physically took a long time to, um, to I mean, walking from one end to another. You know, took Were you using the light, like Dino lights? or No, I used conventional instruments. I, what I did is, uh, uh, which I normally don't do, is I placed uh, um, scissor lifts inside the frame. And I just um, let them go up um, uh, above the frame line. Oh, so you can see the bottoms of it and it looks like right. industrial equipment. Exactly. Or... And so on, on top of, I mean, there was, an, you know, or else we would have rigged it and we would have rigged it for a week. The, the, the place was so huge. And we just couldn't afford to rig it for a week. I mean, yes, it was David Chase's show. And people would not say no to him. But, you know, you have to be realistic. You can't ask for... You can't ask for the moon, you know, if you're if you're walking on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you should say that because one of the things that made, this uh, last scene made me think it was oddly enough was 2001: A Space Odyssey because it had this sort of symmetrical feel and I'm, you know, you know, it's <laughs> so great that you're saying this. David would love that <laughs> because you know we talked about it. Wait, oh, really? Yeah, because it's yes. funny because you know it has that same sort of feeling you get from watching the end of 2001 where you feel something major is about to happen, but then you're left sort of guessing and you know. I mean, was, so that actually came up when you were talking about the scene. Oh, we talked, we talked about 2001 quite a bit. Really interesting. You know, because In terms of the symmetry of the compositions? Not or? only that, but certain things. Um, the first thing that I remember David told me is this. You know, I'm very intrigued by the idea of um, 2001 in which um, the character of David... The, um, Bowman, the astronaut. Or? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so when David, at various points in the film, he sees his own point to... Uh, he's, there is a shot in which he sees himself. Yeah, I knew it because uh, the people have been talking about that cut where Tony comes into the diner and it looks like he sees himself. And so yesterday at home, I was reviewing my 2001 disc at the end when he sees himself in that 18th century style room at the end. And uh-huh. That is exactly <laughs> what we're talking about. Okay. I knew you would get that. I knew you'd get it. You know, but, but, you know, that sort of intellectual involvement, you know, it fuels me. I love this. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, my brother and hasn't stopped talking about this for 10 days now. You know, I'm getting five emails a day from this guy and everybody else about but, it. But, but it's great. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think, and, and, you know, yes, we did talk about it. And I'm so glad that, that you know, certain people have picked up on it. Uh-huh. And it's wonderful because, you know, you do certain things, you know, in hopes that people will realize uh, why are you doing them. Yeah, well, you know, hopefully there'll, uh, there'll be a mini course in some university where they can study it shot by shot and... But but I'm really I'm really happy that you picked up on it because yes it was in our discussion and we talked specifically about 2001 and we talked specifically about uh, there was four times throughout the show four times which Tony is entering into his own point of view one of the one of the times I don't know if it was first one of the times is um, uh, when he comes to uh, visit Janice. Uh, one of the times is at the, the diner. There were two others, and I'm just flanking. Well, that's, you know, 86 episodes. And <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so maybe somebody will watch it and write I'm back. sure somebody out there knows it, believe yeah. me. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to backtrack a bit because I also wanted to ask you a few questions about the uh, approach to the show in general. Um, first of all, I was curious, like, how you actually landed the job to shoot the show. I mean, how did you end up meeting David for the first time? And- uh, I didn't make any effort. What happened is that... Um, um, I did not know who David was. I did not know who Eileen was. Um, I just got a script from my agent um, to read it and um, uh, and to meet 
with. Did he ever tell you why um, you were on the list or of people that he contacted for the show? Um, Is it something you had shot before that he liked? Or? I don't know how he got. Yeah, I, I don't know how he got my name. I think Eileen maybe presented it to him. Uh, I think because you know I didn't do much television. I was a feature guy, uh-huh. independent feature guy. Right. Um, and I think David was looking for someone with feature film sensibilities. And later on, when we started talking about ideas and this and that, I didn't know how David was thinking. And, you know, it turned out that he was this very intellectually inclined person. And I don't know, call me pretentious, but I have, you know, or whatever, you know, I come from Russia, you know, and our tendency is not to be materialistic. Our tendency is to be idealistic. Because we don't have anything. <laughs> right. We never had anything there. So the tendency was to always, always to talk about ideas. Because ideas were abstract. Right, there's not a concrete thing that you can hold right. in your hand. Yeah. And so here's this person, you know, who talks ideas. And to me it was like befuddling, you know. He's an American who has, who has mind. A lot, of, a lot of mind, right? Who's not thinking about, you know... Things. Yeah, American Idol or... You know. <laughs> you know, it was invigorating to me. I was like, wow, I like this guy. I like, you know, he just fueled my... You know, it was very inspiring. You know, I met... I met I, I, when, I, when I left that meeting, I was just... I felt like I was flying. It was just such an invigorating process to be involved. involved. Your mind was... I, I felt like my mind was just pumped with all this energy, you know? Uh, so I read the script... I went to meet with David. We, we, we spoke, we talked about cinema, this and that and that. He told me about his ideas. Um, it w- I was curious, you know, why, why I was chosen. Later on, he told me that, you know, there's a little film that I like that you did, you know, which I also directed. It's called Pausa. It's a, um, really a metaphysical kind of um, um, psychophilosophical meditation, if you, I don't know. I can see why that would appeal to him. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was supposed to take place in Russia, and I shot it in New Jersey and Connecticut for... Um, for Russia, yes, standing in front. Well, uh, Connecticut was for Russia, and New Jersey w- was for New Jersey. And he said, you know, what you did there in the New Jersey landscape is very appealing to me because I understand that landscape. I come from New Jersey. Right? And he said, you know, when we go on with the show, I would like to have that sort of... I don't know if he used exact words... But what I understood is that he wanted to have the weight, cinematographic weight, that represented some sort of East European origin. I don't know if I don't know if that's what he meant, but that's what I understood. Yeah. You know, and it just so happens that the only cinematographer that I think has Eastern European weight to his work is Gordon Willis.